there was a fascinating article that I read during the pandemic that stayed with me. And I want to share part of it with you. If I asked you the question, when did civilization start? You might say something like when people moved into the cities or maybe when clay pots were created or maybe when humans invented tools. And these are all good answers, but there may be more personal and a more meaningful answer. A student once asked Margaret Mead, a famous anthropologist, that question. And she said that the first real evidence of civilization was a 15,000-year-old fractured femur found at an archaeological site. The femur, as you probably know, is the longest bone in the body linking the hip to the knee. It takes about six weeks of rest for a fractured femur to heal. But what was peculiar and unique about this bone is that not only had it been broken, but it had healed. Why is this the beginning of civilization? Well, in the animal kingdom, if you break your leg, you don't survive. You can't run from danger. You can't drink. You can't hunt for food. And being wounded, you are vulnerable to every predator who crosses your path. No creature survives a broken leg long enough for a bone to heal. You get eaten first. But a broken and healed femur is evidence that another person had taken the time to stay with the injured, to, bound, to bind up the wound, to carry that person to safety, and tended to them throughout recovery. A healed femur indicates that someone helped a fellow human being rather than abandoning them to save their own life. The upshot, helping someone else through difficulty is where civilization starts. Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. For indeed, that's all we have ever been. Now, we will never know who this person was or how they broke their leg. We won't know their gender or how they were known in their family tribe. But we do know one thing that makes all the difference. Whoever they were, they were cared for, dare I say loved. And because of that relationship, they survived. It's quite remarkable when you think about it. If this story is any indication, the difference between life and death are really the relationships we have with somebody else. Living and living well may be both about eating right, getting exercise, and doing all the things your doctor tells you to do, but maybe even more importantly, having real friends, partners, soulmates. Now, there's real scientific data to back this up. This summer, my daughter Sarah gave me 
the password to her Audible account. And I listened to a book, a profoundly impactful book called The Good Life, which, if you think about it, sounds exactly like our New Year's greeting, Shana Tova. The book was based on the Harvard Longitudinal Study of 238 initial participants and later their families, something up to the third generation since the study started in 1938. It was a study to see simply what made people happy. This ongoing study has now expanded to thousands of individuals, men and women. Extensive interviews each year or so with each one tracks every aspect of their life, physical, emotional, spiritual, financial, and so forth. And what the researchers found shocked even them. Originally, this, the study was started to see what the clues were to living a happy and healthy life. And the researchers found two very surprising things. They found that close relationships, more than money or fame, are what keep, pe keep people happy throughout their lives. You know, we often think, boy, if I had that kind of money, I'd really be happy. True. We would be able to afford the things that make life comfortable, even luxurious, but without anyone to share it with, to share our joy, to share our sorrows, to share our challenges and our successes, we languish physically, mentally, and spiritually. And second, the researchers discovered the counterintuitive truth that absolutely no life is preordained regardless of background. What they found was that what protects people from life's discontents and what truly makes people happy and what helps to delay mental and physical decline are the relationships we have. This is true regardless of social class, of IQ, even genes. That finding proved true across the board among the Harvard men who were initially studied and the inner city participants of Boston. We might think that the Harvard-trained lawyer is happier by dint of wealth and prestige than the guy driving a taxi in the south end of Boston. But in fact, that is not the case. I suppose that's what kept me really engaged in this book. It got me thinking about our usual greeting at the holidays. I mean, what do we say? We say Shana Tova, which is almost always mistranslated as Happy New Year. In fact, a Happy New Year would be something like a Shana Simcha. Why did the expression evolve into Shana Tova, have a good year, as opposed to have a happy new year. Maybe those who invented the expression knew already what the Harvard study found out, that happiness is not acquired by wealth or status or even money. Rather, happiness is a function of who we get to share our lives with, who we are blessed to have as friends, who is there when we need them, who in our sorrows and challenges 
we can lean on for support. The relationships we have bring us closer to a good year, not necessarily a happy year. Put another way, it wasn't just their middle-aged cholesterol levels that predicted how they were going to grow old. Rather, it was how satisfied they were in their relationships. And the people who were most satisfied in their relationships at age 50 were almost always the healthiest at age 80. Jewish wisdom seems to know this long before the Harvard study. In Ecclesiastes, said to have been written by King Solomon as a kind of a portrait of his life, we meet a man who is physically frail, and he is miserable as he approaches the end of his life. And you can sense this right at the opening passage of the book of Kohelet, of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. What real value is there for a person in all the gains he makes under the sun? He is the biblical version of a Debbie Downer, if you ever watch Saturday Night Live. He had it all. He had the palaces. He had the gardens. He had the wives, the wealth. And he had no joy, no happiness. We probably all know people like this. The route to Aishana Tova turns out to be harder than taking the waiting out of wanting. Many years ago, someone in Great Depression wrote a rabbi, this is true, and said to the rabbi, I am sad and apprehensive. I can't concentrate. I can't pray. I have generally no spiritual satisfaction. Indeed, I always went to temple, but I always felt alone. I need help. That was his exact letter to the rabbi. The rabbi responded with some sage advice and an observation. He gently pointed out that every first word of every sentence in that letter was I. When you look at Ecclesiastes, you see a man who is phobicina. He is bitter about everything. It seemed to him that too many years of his life were truly a shanatova when you juxtapose his misery with the fact that the word I occurs 88 times in the book, then even though his life was good, you get an idea of why his life was so miserable. A shanatova lives in the realm of not I. You may know the name Monte Moses Montefiore. He was a Victorian-era Jew, close friend to Queen Victoria, and he became the leader of English Jewry for many decades. And when he retired from work at 40 years old, before dying at 101, one of the first things he did was build housing for the poor, and if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you've seen the world-famous windmill that still stands, that he built in a city called Meish, in a, a Yamin Moshe. And someone once asked him and said to him, Sir Moses, how much are you worth? And he thought for a while, and he named a figure. And his friend said, that can't be right. You are worth at least 10 times that. And Montefiore replied, you didn't 
you didn't ask me how much I own. You asked me how much I was worth. And so I calculated the tzedakah and the charity I gave this year, and that's the figure I gave you. You see, we are worth what we give away of ourselves. Montefiore understood what Kohelet didn't. Not all of us have the ability to share like Moses Montefiore. But every one of us has a soul and a spirit, and each of us can connect in some way with another, perhaps not for a happy year, but certainly toward a good year. We are living in a time of global crisis. Connecting with our fellow humans takes on a new urgency. The pandemic put this need for connection into stark relief. As the disease spread and the lockdowns began, many people reached out to solidify the most important relationships in their lives to boost their sense of connection and security. And then as the lockdown stretched from weeks to months and beyond, people began feeling the effects of social isolation in strange and somehow profound ways. Our bodies and minds, inextricably intertwined, reacted to our stress of isolation. People all over the world began experiencing health impacts, as school kids, for instance, lost regular contacts with their teachers and their friends. Workers lost the presence of their uh, workmates. Weddings were postponed. Friendships were sidelined. And those of us who had access to the internet had to settle for connecting through computer screens. And as terrific as services on Friday night were online, they weren't the same without the friendship, the handshake, the community singing together. Yes, we managed, but we didn't thrive. Suddenly it became clear that schools and movie theaters, restaurants, and ballparks weren't just about learning or watching movies, eating food, and playing sports. They were really serving another function we never thought of, being together. We need to be together. As much as we need food and exercise, we need relationships. We need places of love and friendship and cooperation, like this synagogue. And so learning from Ecclesiastes, learning from our high holiday liturgy, and learning from the very secular Harvard study, how do we move further along our own paths towards a good life? First, let's learn from Ecclesiastes that the good life, a shana tova, is not a destination. It is the path itself. And the people who are walking it with you, as you walk, Second by second, you can decide with whom you share your attention. As the Harvard study suggests, and as Ecclesiastes learned, and as the prayer book that you hold in your hand teaches, week by week, we can and must prioritize our relationships and choose to be with the people who matter. Year by year, we can find purpose and meaning through our lives and the lives that we enrich and the relationships that each of us cultivates. By developing our curiosity, reaching out to others, family, loved ones, co-workers, friends, acquaintances, even strangers, 
And Stella will tell you that when they used to take coins at the Easy Pass, I would always get in a conversation with that guy. To our families, our loved ones, everybody, one thoughtful question at a time. A moment what Martin Buber called an I-thou moment. In every one of those moments, we strengthen the foundation of a Shana Tova, a good year. Think about someone, just one person who is important to you. Someone who may not know how much they really mean to you. It could be your spouse. It could be your significant other. A friend, a co-worker, a sibling, a parent, a child, a coach, a teacher, your rabbi, somebody from your younger days. That person could be sitting beside you as you pray in the sanctuary this evening or maybe in some distant place. Think about where they stand in your lives. What are they struggling with? Think about what they mean to you. Think about what they have done in your life. Where would you be today without them? Who would you be? Now think about what you would like to thank them for if you thought you would never see them again. And then at this moment, in this holy week, right now, turn to them. Call them. For in the telling is the beginning. The beginning not necessarily of a happy new year, but of a Shana Tova, a good year. A good year that is always within our reach. That is Teshuvah, return. Return to your relationships. And I wish you a Shana Tova. I wish you a good year. And also a happy year. But more important, a good year. <laughs>